Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. I want to read the sermon text this morning. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to continue in chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke. The text should be on the screen, but I urge you to open the Word and look at it. I'm going to pick up in verse 38 of chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Andy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I beg your indulgence. I'm I'm nursing a bit of a froggy throat that is the result of a lingering cough from COVID a couple, three weeks ago. So if I start sounding a little crunchy as this goes on, that's the way it went in the first service. The longer I went, um, the worse I sounded. So maybe I just shouldn't go as long. Maybe, maybe that's the lesson the Lord is trying to teach, Donnie. I don't know. We'll see. I have to be honest with you this morning, um, as if I'm not usually honest with you. Um, I, initial run through this text, I don't like it. I, I, I push back from it, and I, I, I almost just want to go... Psh- Because Jesus says to Martha, only one thing is necessary. And it has to be true because he said it. I know that, but I struggle to believe that's true. Because I rarely, if ever, feel like only one thing is necessary. I feel like 1,700 things are necessary. And for Jesus to say only one thing, I, 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 I know he's my Lord and, and what he is the way, the truth, and the life. But I want to push back from the table and go, Jesus, come on. You, you, can't, you can't be serious. I mean, I'm all for a little hyperbole, Lord. But this is just a little bit insensitive. I mean, don't you see that I... I, I I have to attend to this. I have to be here. My schedule dictates that I attend to these things. I have responsibilities. I mean, there's not a Christian in this room that doesn't identify with, A, loving the Lord, desiring intimate fellowship with him, desiring quality time in his word and in prayer and in worship, and then struggling to fit that into our overcrowded schedules. Which is, and let's just say this, we'll put the best possible spin on it we can. Our schedules, many times, are not filled with frivolous things. They're not filled with things that are wicked or evil or even wasteful. At least not all of it. They're they're real responsibilities. Things that have to be prioritized. And so when I come to a text like this, I fight the same thing you do. I just want to go, where's John 3.16? This is, I'm not even going to, but that's not what we need to do. When, When the Bible makes statements, when it declares truth to us, when our Lord speaks truth to us, and it jostles the mind and soul, and we we want to push back from the table and go, there's no way that's true. That's where we need to camp out, because I can tell you, The more time I spent on this text, there was a point, and I'm going to show you where, there was a point at which I went from disliking this text to loving every last morsel of it. And if you give the Lord time and his word time, many times you'll find 
you make that transition as well. So let's dive in. Verse 38 again. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So let's talk about where we are contextually. Presumably, this is the same Mary and Martha who have a brother, Lazarus, that Jesus, if he hasn't already, is going to develop a pretty close friendship with them. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. If if this is the same family, which I'm 99.9% sure that it is, they live in Bethany, which is a little small village, village about two miles east of Jerusalem, just down the backside of the Mount of Olives. And that we're, we're several months out from that event where Jesus goes there, raises Lazarus from the dead, and it really sets the tone and the anticipation that we see happen when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're about six months out from Jesus' death. We began chapter 10, nine or 10 months out. We're now six months out. So this is time critical. Wouldn't you agree? This is time critical. We, we, we are making a, a significant transition in Luke's narrative where from chapter, the end of chapter 10 all the way into chapter 19, what we get is Jesus teaching his disciples. It's their last semester before they take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And a question gets raised in my mind, Luke, why did you put this in here? I mean, it might, don't know for sure, it might fall chronologically right where we are. After the lawyer and the parable of the Good Samaritan that we looked at last week, before we get into Jesus' teaching on prayer and then six months basically of teaching until he goes to Jerusalem the last time, this might be where it happened chronologically, but why even emphasize it? It seems like such a small little thing. Jesus goes over to somebody's house for dinner, and there's a little interchange with these two relatively obscure people, Mary and Martha. We don't know hardly anything about them. Why even put this in here, Luke? It's certainly not as significant, is it, as a seminal moment like when Jesus sends out the 72 in his name to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God, heal the sick, cast out demons. Even the interchange with a lawyer last week, a significant figure in Jewish society, and Jesus offers this incredible parabolic teaching. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke, why even put this in here? I said already that from this point, Luke, miracles are going to take a back seat. You're going to see that. They're only occasionally mentioned. And Luke doesn't even bother to tell us where Jesus is. There's not another town mentioned until chapter 18, verse 35. It's Jericho. It's from there Jesus will make his final ascent into Jerusalem. Luke is only concerned with one thing, teaching. It's teaching time. And can I just tell you, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get into chapter 19, probably several months at the pace we're going. But fasten your seatbelts. Jesus, let me just tell you some things Jesus is going to teach on. Again, with miracles, not totally, but for the most part, kind of fading into the background, not even really worried about where he is. This is Jesus teaching, and primarily to his disciples. And here's the kind of things he's going to talk about he's going to address prayer, he's going to teach about Satan and demons. He's going to teach about divine judgment, hypocrisy, persecution, suffering, the Holy Spirit. He's going to warn about greed. He's going to talk about giving, contentment, how to use money, how to be a good steward. There will be lessons on unity, righteousness, holiness, instruction on divine justice, humility, pride, the cost of loyalty to him. He'll teach more about the kingdom of God and how to enter it. He's going to talk about how heaven rejoices when sinners convert. He's even going to talk about divorce, about hell, about penitence, about forgiveness, and a lot about faith. And when you agree, our Lord's teaching is unequaled. 
So that's where we are in the narrative. We've got maybe another, maybe, maybe it'll take us six months. Six months of Jesus teaching. That's what Luke was inspired to write. What's our posture? What position should we take? What attitude? What's important? Maybe we ought to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary. I think that's why Luke put this here. I think it's his way of subtly telling us what the Holy Spirit inspired me to record from here in this next large section is what Jesus had to say to his disciples before he went to the cross in those last six months. So sit down, church. Realize with Mary, even though maybe we're not quite yet ready to receive this as true, it is true only one thing is necessary. Sit at his feet. Martha does something good. She welcomes Jesus into her home. Let's let's not ding her too much. I mean, Jesus has been sending out disciples two by two, (coughs) excuse me, into towns and villages ahead of him. And in some places, they were received and welcomed. In others, they were rejected. Well, Martha does something good. She invites Jesus and presumably some number of his disciples, I don't think it was 72. If it was, God help her. Some number of his disciples with him into her home. What a gracious invitation. I'm sure Jesus said thank you. What happens when they get in that house? We don't know much about it. I think they probably shared a meal. This is the way I think it went down. I can't prove it entirely, but let's just, I don't think I'm out of bounds to say that I think they went in and there was probably some casual conversation. And I think, because this is the way it typically went down in these days, the women prepared a meal. So Mary and Martha, maybe some other women, maybe the women that were with Jesus pitched in and helped. And there was a meal that was prepared and they sat down and they ate. But at some point, we don't know, I can't prove that for sure, but here's what I do know. At some point, Jesus started to teach. Why? Because it's time critical. we got six months. There's some things that he needs his disciples to know and understand. And the others in the house got the benefit of listening in. And I imagine that there was probably cleanup to be done still. I imagine that preparations for the next meal needed to get started. I imagine there's probably other hosting duties that needed to be attended to. Okay, the wash basins where they wash their feet need to be cleaned out and fresh water needs to be put in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a mountain of things to do. But Mary, this is the way I think it went down in her mind. She goes, there's so much to do. But she drops it all because I think she concluded, if Jesus is teaching, there's nothing more important than for me to sit and listen. I'm willing to put it all aside and listen to what he's got to say. That was Mary's posture. But Martha, who's done good by inviting Jesus into her home, and undoubtedly, out of a sincere desire to be a good host, has attended to his and his disciples' needs. But then by this point, verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. Everybody say serving. That's the same Greek word that we get our word minister from or ministry or deacon. In other words, Martha's not doing something bad, is she? She's doing something good. She's serving. She's being a good host. But Luke describes it as she was distracted with much serving. I don't like that either. Any more than I like, only one thing's necessary. But at this, right, by this point, my, my feathers are getting ruffled. Distracted with much serving? Come on. Didn't Jesus say, if you want to be great, become the servant? Serving's not bad. 
What's that about, Luke? Okay, let's keep going. And she went up to him, to Jesus now. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to get up and help. What's going on here? Two things, I think. Why is Martha upset? You could probably figure it out on your own. I thought of two things. There's an issue of priority. Martha prioritized serving. Did she not? Mary prioritized listening. Neither one's bad. Both are good. But the question is, which one's more important? Which one's best? Because I think Martha would say, you know what? I would like to be sitting at Jesus' feet too, Mary. But there's too much to do. Lord, tell her to get up. I don't think Mary, or Jesus for that matter, would look back at Martha and go, Martha, what you're doing is wicked. What you're doing is evil. You shouldn't be doing that. It's not the issue. The issue is priority. What is best? What is more important? There's a difference between good and best. Secondly, I think there's an issue of appreciation. Because as I stared at this, I thought to myself, you know, if all Martha wanted was help, she could have slipped in. You know, I imagine Mary and and the disciples, maybe others sitting at Jesus' feet. Maybe maybe he's on a stool or a chair, and, and they're all sitting on the ground, maybe. I don't know. But I imagine that Mary could have slipped up to Martha I mean, to to Mary, excuse me, Martha could have slipped up to Mary, minimizing the distraction from the Lord's teaching and whispered in her ear, Mary, I need some help. Please get up. And Mary might have said, oh, okay. And it would have been over. But that's not what she did. She goes to Jesus. Lord, do you not care? And what's the implication? You don't care what I'm doing for you. I think what Martha wanted was not just Mary's help, but she wanted Jesus to go, oh, I'm sorry. Martha, we so appreciate everything that you've done for for us in your home. Mary, would you please get up and help your sister? I think that's what Martha wanted. She not only wanted to be validated, she wanted to be appreciated. And those two things tend to work against us, don't they? We tend to think that, Well, if whatever it is that I'm distracted by could be lumped into the category of ministry and service, here's the way we talk about it. I'm serving the Lord. And you might say, you might use that term. You've used that. How many of you used that phrase before? I'm serving the Lord, whether it's at church, raise your hand, whether it's at church or even attending the things at home, in your marriage, with your kids, even with your business, helping somebody on the side of the road. I'm serving the Lord. The Lord. Is that biblical? See, whatever Martha was doing and wanted Mary's help with and wanted appreciation for undoubtedly had something to do with meeting the needs of our Lord and his group. She probably thought, I'm serving the Lord. This is more important. Is that biblical? Is that a right way to think about it? Let me just... Press on that a little bit. Press on that language, okay? Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25. It'll be on the screen. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now watch this. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind, breath, and life, and everything. Wow. There's something really sweet about realizing the Lord doesn't need you. I know that sounds harsh. And spoiler alert, at the end of this service, we're going to sing the song, Lord, I need you. Never does the Lord sing, I need Michael. Does he invite Michael to participate with him? Absolutely. 
but does the Lord need anything from us? He says to the prophet of Isaiah, I'll accomplish all my purpose. You can read the book of Genesis, read, read, read creation story, and look at the commands that God gives Adam, the instructions and the responsibilities, and then watch throughout the narrative of Genesis how one by one God takes those responsibilities on himself after the fall. God doesn't need anything. He's completely self-sufficient. Some people think that the reason he commands us to worship him is that he needs adoration. No, you need to adore him. You know why? You know why he commands that? For your joy and for his glory. There's no greater joy than admiring what is admirable. You know that to be true. You have so much more joy admiring your kids than you do staring at yourself in the mirror. So to admire the most admirable means you, you step into the greatest joy. Fair? And if I step into the greatest joy of admiring and adoring God, guess what? I also step into the greatest righteousness, which is adoring the God who is above all things and is completely and totally worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. So, the Lord doesn't need anything. Jesus himself said, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This point right here is where I went from disliking Jesus' words to wanting to savor every last morsel of them. When it dawned on me, Jesus did not want or need Martha to serve him. He wanted to serve her. He wanted to give her his word. And Martha's struggle was maybe realize, maybe thinking to herself, nobody else really, have you ever felt like you're the only one who sees what needs to be done? And do you ever feel like you have to remind the Lord, Lord, do you understand all that I have to, all that you gave me to attend to? As if, as if he doesn't care about all these little details that tend to dominate our minds and our schedules. As if he doesn't care. I was talking with somebody not that long ago about getting involved in a discipling, mentoring opportunity that had been presented to them. You know what the first words out of their mouth were? I don't have time. Please understand, I sympathize with busyness. I'm a pastor, and when the Lord calls me to sit at his feet, I, my mouth is full of all of the same yeah buts that yours are. Yeah but, my kids. Yeah but, my spouse. Yeah but, my grass. Yeah but, the budget, yeah, but the volunteer gaps, yeah, but the facility issues, yeah, but these appointments I got to get to, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but my business, my school, my homework, my you just keep going on down the list. We've all got the yeah, buts. We got a, we got a strong case of them. And yet, the Lord would invite us to pause and be still. And I said to this, this person, I said, look, wouldn't it be worth it to A, get, set aside whatever you've got to set aside to take advantage of this opportunity, make room in your schedule, and at the same time, trust Jesus with all the things that you feel like are going to fall through the cracks and by the wayside if you give your attention to him in this way? What might that look like? What if we did that? 
What if we lived that way? What if we realized that what the Lord maybe wants in this moment, in this season of our lives, is not so much our dutiful compliance to all the things, as if we were serving him. Listen, I understand what we mean by that most of the time. What we mean is we are, we are serving in his name, and that's fine. But if we adopt the notion that we're doing God favors, that we're sort of earning merit badges with him, I think we run the risk of being in the position that Martha's in as opposed to the position that Mary's in. Because don't you and I both stand here in this place that we're in in life and just long to be where Mary is and feel like we can't get from Martha to Mary because of all the stuff in between. And yet the Lord is saying, Mary, listen to what he says. Well, let me just read it, verse 41. The Lord answered Martha and said, Martha, Martha. There's only about three or four or five times in the New Testament where someone's name is repeated that way. This is very tender from Jesus. Very tender, very compassionate, very loving. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Not wicked things, not evil things, not things that don't matter or are insignificant, but other things. This is not an issue of good versus evil, moral versus immoral. This is a matter of priority because he says, verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion or the better thing or the best thing, and it will not be taken from her. And that's where the story ends for us. And if you're living in the story well, like Martha, feeling like Martha, identifying like Martha, that's where all the yeah buts come up. Lord, this really, how do I do this? Here's what we know. I think you would agree with this. In any relationship, attentiveness is premium. Is that true? I think about my marriage. Is it a good thing for me to serve my wife? Certainly it is. Anything that I can do to provide for her, protect her, demonstrate that I love and care for her, that's a good thing. But if I could bottle this up in in pill form and give it to every husband, including myself, and make us all swallow it down, husbands, to realize this is true, what our wives want and need from us most, first, is not our monumental efforts to bring home the bacon. I know I'm being a little stereotypical. Just go with it, okay? To bring home the bacon, like, we, like they, what they need from us is to just be these big financial providers when really what they need more than anything is an emotional provider. What they want or need more than all of our doing things is they need and want our attention. And you know what I've found? I'm still trying to learn this after almost 23 years of marriage. I find that if I give my wife my attention, if I consistently do that, you know what, I, what happens? The serving and the doing things, they just spill over out of that. And I find that I'm serving my wife not as a matter of I have to, but as I get to. Because a wise man said this to me. I think it's all over our Bibles in some form or another. It says it this way. Being, doing, always flows out of being. When Donnie taught last week, he did such a marvelous job of pointing this out. The lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't tell him something to do. In fact, he asks him a question. What's in the law? How do you read it? He quotes Deuteronomy 6. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't tell that man to go do something. He told him he had to become something. A lover of God whose love and affection for God spills over into love for a neighbor. That's how you be a neighbor. The man asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, go be a neighbor. To which the man, if he had any sense of an honest assessment of himself, would have been taking his own pulse and going, I can't do that. 
I need to become something. What if what Jesus wants, before we ever even really think about how we might serve him, if that's even a biblical way to think about it, I'll let you stew on that. You can figure it out. What if what he wants before we serve him is that he could serve us, that he could begin a good work in us that he'll be faithful to complete, and then all of our doing flows out of this being where instead of all these things that I have to do for the Lord or I have to do for my family or I have to do for this business the Lord has entrusted to me or this degree that he's led me to pursue, all these things I have to do or all these things that I get to do that flow from sitting at his feet and being attentive to him. If attentiveness is premium in all our relationships, what makes us think that attentiveness to Jesus isn't premium also. Hmm. So that's where it ends. Here's what Luke doesn't answer. We're going to get a little bit of this in chapter 11, is how do we do this? How do we, how do we sit at Jesus' feet? Because here's what we know. Jesus is not physically present like he was for Mary and Martha. I can't pull up a piece of floor at his feet while he sits in a chair and I I physically listen to him teach. So how do we do this? And, And there again, I feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. How do we do this? It's not doing, it's, it's being. But here's what we know is that in order for any sort of attentiveness in a relationship with Jesus to be possible, God first has to do a work in us. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But here's what we know to be true from the whole of Scripture. Those who diligently seek him are those whom he's raised from death to life. Right? So if the Lord has raised you from death to life, he's rebirthed your soul, right? He's called you to be his own, then all of these things are possible, and these are get-tos, not have-tos that I think can spill over into a different kind of life, okay, where we realize only one thing is really necessary, okay? Here are my three. You can decide if these are helpful or not. Number one, attentiveness to Scripture. Attentiveness to Scripture. I already said it. For the next several months, we're going to be sitting at Jesus' feet, as it were, in the Gospel of Luke because he's going to be teaching all manner of things, all the way into chapter 19. And I don't think, you're a Christian, I don't think I have to convince you that attentiveness to God's word personally is important. Even if you're struggling to fit it into your schedule, I don't think I have to convince you that this is primary, this is essential, and you need it. Here's where I think I could step on some toes and challenge us a little bit, if you'll just allow me to do so. I feel like we... And when I say we, I would say the church capital C in this part of the world in particular. Some, this is true of at res, we've gotten lazy about Lord's Day worship. I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm being legalistic or putting some sort of scriptural law on anybody. Here's all that I would ask us all to do. Consider how many distractions do you allow to get in the way of being present, gathered with your worshiping community for worship in song and in the word? I'm not talking about the occasional vacation. I'm not talking about when you're sick, okay? I'm just talking about how we as a culture, as a society, have allowed so many other things to become more important. And we justify it. We justify it. We say, here are all the reasons why it's worth it for me to not be present and gathered with the people. You know, this, you can read the stats everywhere. Most churches, three quarters of their membership attend church once or twice a month at most. That's a regular attender. When I was growing up, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then if we had a revival, just hang on for dear life, right? It was like, who knows how long that's going to last. And I think that's a loss. 
I honestly, I'm sad about it. You guys that have been res regulars, you know I don't, I, I don't use this as a bully pulpit. I'm not trying to bully anybody. I'm just trying to challenge us to think about what are our priorities? Because Jesus says only one thing is necessary. And I, listen, I'm all for personal time in the Word. I'm all for time in the Word with my family. I do it every week. But you know as well as I do, there's something about being attentive to Jesus in, as the body of Christ that it, it has a way of reminding us that we, we're strangers and aliens here now. We don't go about life like normal people, do we? We ask the Lord what's the priority. We get a surplus of money, and we're praying our faces off because we're like, Lord, what do I do with this? You've entrusted this to me. What would you have me do? We don't live life like normal people because this tells us we're not normal people anymore. Attentiveness to Scripture, personally and corporately, is one of the ways that I think we can sit at Jesus' feet and give attention to what he says is the one thing that's necessary. That spills over to number two, which is a growing knowledge and understanding of the character and nature of Jesus. To get to know Jesus better is worth every ounce of sacrifice and trusting him to set the agenda that's necessary, amen? I told the first service, you know, when Mary and I's relationship began, we started dating, and then into the early years of our marriage, we spent so much time leading worship together. And most of the time, I was on one keyboard and she was on another. And we did that so much. It got to where I could just look at her, and she knew exactly what I was thinking. We're going we're to do that course again. Or she would look at me and say, I'm not sure, you know, where, where are you going? And I could give her a little nod back, and we would know exactly what to do with no words spoken. There's a little, in Mark's gospel, you remember that there's two records of a mass feeding that Jesus does? And, and the first mass feeding Jesus teaches all day, the people are hungry, the disciples are hungry, and they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, send these people away, they need to eat, and so do we. Jesus says, you feed them. They're like, Jesus, that's crazy. There's no way. He says, how much food do you have? Go and look. They go and look. They come back, we got five loaves, two fish, and you know the rest of the story. An almost exact same miracle happens again in Mark chapter 8. Turn with me there. I want to show you this. Mark chapter 8. We're talking about doing that flows out of being, right? That attentiveness to Jesus would result in a greater awareness and understanding of his character and nature. And if we grew in a greater understanding of his character and nature, what might that look like in terms of how we live and even how we serve? Mark chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> Mark says, in those days, when a great, again, when again, it's the second time this has happened, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them away <clears throat> hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So this time, the disciples don't initiate the conversation. Jesus does. And he says, hey, guys, these people haven't had anything to eat, and I have compassion on them. Awkward silence. Right? What are they thinking? Now look what they say. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's a different question. 
It's not, Jesus, you're crazy. Even if we had 200 denarii, we, we still, there's nowhere to buy enough food to feed all these people. That's insane. It's not that. It's, Jesus, how, how does one go about feeding? It's almost like they're going, uh, we've been here before. It's almost like, like I imagine Peter, because he's the impetuous one going, man, I'm hungry. We got to send these people home. And John goes, hey, Peter, this has happened before. Don't wait, wait. Maybe, maybe he's going to do something. And look at this. Jesus answered them or asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they, and they said, seven. Almost like they had gone and looked ahead of him bringing this up. Why? Because they had grown in their knowledge and their understanding of Jesus' character and nature. This is the kind of place where he likes to do his best. We don't have enough, but let's at least be ready. Because if he invites us to feed these people too, we know it'll be by his strength and power that it happens, not our resources. What kind of life could we live if we lived that way? We realize only one thing's necessary, attentiveness to Jesus and to his word. And when you become more aware of his character and nature, as you're attentive to his word, again, personally and corporately, I think this is where it's different for us, is that though Jesus is not physically present with us in the way that he was for the disciples, how many of you understand he is present with us? The apostle Peter would say, even though you can't see him, you love him. And I think that love comes from his genuine presence that's with us even now, even in this moment, where he would say the same thing to us that he said to Martha, only one thing is necessary. So we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. And here's what I want to challenge you to do, and you can pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you do this. All of those things, that aren't wicked, they're not evil, they're good. And in some sense, they're necessary. All of those things, ask the Holy Spirit to help you set them down, set them aside for a few minutes at least for you to be able to pray and sing, Lord, I need you. And then I'm gonna come back and read the scripture when we'll be done, okay? So let's stand together. Stephen, lead us.
So teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Because Jesus, you're my hope and stay. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Because Jesus, you're my hope and stay. invite you to, as a symbol, hold your hands out, palms up, close your eyes, and let's just start to give him all the things that feel so urgent, feel so weighty and necessary, and we struggle to prioritize attentiveness to Jesus because of these things. Let's just take a moment and just, in prayer and in faith, give those to him. Here's my business, here's my education, here's my home, here's, here's my family, here's my marriage, here's my parents, here's my children. I know that you haven't called me to sit on my hands in all these things, but I am trusting that you care about all those things more than I do. So I lay them at your feet and I ask for your help, Lord, that you would help me prioritize attentiveness to you. Help me do that. And now as you keep your eyes closed, because I want you to concentrate and listen to the words of Jesus now. We're going to listen to him speak. I'm going to read it, but I... These are his words that I believe he wants to speak over us this morning. Our Lord says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father 
knows that you need them all. But seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What you have just heard, what I have just read, are the words of the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. I think we can trust him. Amen. Can we trust him? Just take 10 seconds, lift your hands to him. Just, Just let his word wash over you, his lordship wash over you, his compassion and care for you wash over you. Lord, we surrender to you today. We're going to put down the bread of anxious toil. We realize unless you build the house, those that labor, labor in vain. Lord, we're going to put all our hope and all our trust in you. Lord, we need you. And we will sit at your feet. We will listen. And you will make us fishers of men. (laughs) You'll make us into something that we're not on our own. So we trust you to do that work. We trust you with all of our being and all of our doing. In Jesus' name. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.